Welcome. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the executive pastors here. For the last several weeks since the new year, we've been in this series that we're calling CORE. Really what this series is about is we're looking at who we are and who we want to be as a church, who we believe God is calling us to be as a church. And so that very first week of the new year, we looked at our mission statement of connecting people to Jesus. And we asked, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? And then over the last few weeks, we've taken that and we've been looking at our core commitments, our three core commitments that help us live into that mission of connecting people to Jesus. The first week, uh, what is called, our core commitment is called, we believe that Jesus changes everything. Which really means that we're a Jesus-centered community, that we believe God's spirit transforms lives, and we believe that the gospel is good news for all. Our second core commitment, which we talked about last week, was that we believe in growing together. Which means that we believe that spiritual growth and development happens in community. That we need each other. That we want to be an intergenerational church where young and old come together to help us to be the church that God is calling us to be. And that leaves us with our last and our final core commitment. That we believe in being the best neighbors. And that's what we're going to think about today. Being the best neighbors. And to do that, I want to use one of, if not the most well-known story in all of the Bible. The story is so well-known that you don't have to be a church person to know this reference or, or, or to have, have used this reference in your life. I'm talking, of course, about the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is one of those stories that even if you have no faith background, you've probably heard at news stations talk about the Good Samaritan, the the person who stopped and helped someone change a tire, or someone who paid for someone's groceries when they forgot their wallet. It's in in TV shows and movies. It's all all throughout. We, We know of the Good Samaritan. And if you did grow up in church, chances are this is one of the first stories you ever learned in Sunday school about being the Good Samaritan. And I think that's one of the troubles with a story like this, that if we grew up in church, we have become so familiar with this story that if we're reading our Bible and we come to this story, we kind of just cruise control through this story. And so I guess my my prayer this morning is that even though this story may be familiar, that we could see it with new eyes this morning and ask, what does God have for us in this text? The Good Samaritan is found in Luke chapter 10. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is really kind of a two-part book, uh, because Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but then he also wrote the book of Acts. And so the the Gospel of Luke really tells the story of Jesus, and then Acts picks up right as Jesus is about to leave, and then tells the story of the formation of the early church. And one of the things that we see in in Luke's writing, specifically uh, in the Gospel of Luke, is Luke has this, this emphasis, or this focus, I'm talking about how there are certain people that would normally be kind of on the outside. Those those left out, those on the margins. And and these people, like a centurion or someone with leprosy, a tax collector, demon-possessed person, and how these folks seem to have an acute ability to recognize who Jesus is and and what Jesus is all about. So many times, uh, the disciples and the religious leaders are, are missing what Jesus is trying to do. But it's these other people, these outsiders, who can rightly recognize God's activity and can respond with humility and repentance. And we're certainly going to see that here in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke 10. And I guess one other note. The Good Samaritan is a parable, which is a unique, unique kind of story in literature. 
See, I, I think too often when we read scripture, uh, we kind of approach it with this copy and paste mentality. Where we just, okay, we read the story, copy and paste. I, I saw a post this week from a pastor. Uh, he had been working on sermon stuff uh, for, I don't know how long, uh, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And he said that he was watching his daughter's cat. And after about 30 minutes of sermon work, he got up and took a little break. And he came back to this picture. I think. We might have it. Maybe we don't. Okay, envision this. Close your eyes. If it comes up there, it comes up there. But envision a table with probably six or seven books around it, a laptop, and laying nice and cozy on the laptop, right on the keyboard, is a cat. He said he came back from his break, and the cat was all cozied up on the keyboard, and his sermon was gone. That's not quite copy and paste, that's copy and delete, and that's also why we're a dog family, because, because I don't want cats to get in the way of ministry, and that's apparently what they do. But a lot of times when we read scripture, we come with this copy and paste, like, like, okay, that's what happened, let's copy and paste that right into my life, let's copy and paste that exact thing right into my life. The problem is that's not how scripture is meant to be used, especially parables. Because parables are these stories that invite us to use our imagination. They invite us to to use our imagination to see how God's kingdom is at work and then to imagine and envision how God's kingdom may be at work around us. And so because of that, I want to read this entire section all through. Because maybe what the God's spirit is speaking to you this morning is nothing that I've prepared, nothing that I've been wrestling with all week. But I want to read this story so that you too can put on your gospel imagination and begin to see how God might be at work. We're in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. It says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The, rest, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Really a, a fascinating story here. We, we have this expert in the law, a lot of translations say a lawyer, 
Someone who, who knew the text, knew the law in and out. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do uh, to inherit God's kingdom? And Jesus turns the question on him and says, okay, well, what does the law say? You're the expert. And here, this lawyer quotes or references two different passages in the Old Testament. The first is from Deuteronomy 6, what we call the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your strength, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. And the second passage is from Leviticus 19, where he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus seems pleased with his answer. He says, yeah, that's correct. Do that and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself. He wanted to qualify himself. So he asked this important question. And, and who is my neighbor? I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. And who is my neighbor? And this question makes sense from, from a first century Jewish worldview. You know, in so many ways, that culture in first century, uh, the Middle East, was very different from our culture today. Very different. But in also several ways, there is this human level that makes it very similar. Because really, what, what they were trying to do with this question is they were trying to make sense of the world around them. And they would often do that by drawing lines and creating borders and barriers to figure out, okay, well, well who's in and who's out? Who, who's good and who's bad? Who's safe? Who's dangerous? Who can experience God's blessing? And who can't experience that blessing? And so this question, though it might seem bizarre, it fits squarely into this first century Jewish worldview. But this idea of neighbor is interesting to me. Because, like, like I said, he's referencing this passage in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And the book of Leviticus talks a lot about being a neighbor. Like, like a lot about being a neighbor. But if we look at that Hebrew word for neighbor in Leviticus, it's pretty broad. It, it can mean all sorts of different things. It can mean social or, or spatial proximity. It, it can mean all sorts of things. But it, what it doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with ethnicity or, or if you are a fellow Israelite or not. But then over time, this idea of neighbor started to narrow. There were more conditions added to who can be your neighbor. To the point where we're here in Luke 10, and this word neighbor has in essence been boiled down to, are you a fellow Jew or are you not? And that was important because if our command is to love our neighbor, then it's really important that we know who, who does that love have to extend to? So who is my neighbor? And Jesus jumps into this story. He, he tells this story about a very familiar place. He says this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when Jesus would have said this, all of the, his, his audience would have known exactly what he was talking about. There was this road, it was about 15 miles, that started up in Jerusalem, about 1,200 feet above sea level, and went down to Jericho, about 2,000 feet below sea level. And it was this windy road notorious for being dangerous. In fact, for that first century audience, they would have known that that road was called the Way of Blood. And so it's not, not probably surprising that this man was going down this road and all of a sudden he was attacked and robbed and beaten and left for dead. 
And then Jesus said a priest came along. And when the priest saw this man, he kind of went around and, and went on his way. And then a Levite comes by and sees this man and goes around and continues on his way. And chances are, most of the people who were listening to Jesus' story, in the back of their mind, they thought, oh, I know where this is going. I knew who that third person is going to be, the, the hero. But most of his audience thought that that third person was going to be a common, ordinary Jew, a farmer or a carpenter, someone with low social status. But a Jew was going to come along, not, not the priest, not, not, not the big Levite, but the Jew was going to come and he was going to take care of this man and he was going to bandage him and he was going to help get him back on his feet. And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan. This is when the, the record kind of skips a beat. That sound effect enters into the story. Because we, we, we know that, that there was this, this tension between the Jews and the Samaritan and it wasn't just this surface level don't really care for you kind of thing but it was this deep-seated anger, hatred, bitterness that, that they couldn't see how there was anything redeemable about the other people. And all of a sudden Jesus tells this story that has a very clear answer to the question who is my neighbor? But it wasn't the answer that anybody expected. The Samaritan? The Samaritan is the example of God's people? See, I think when we look at this story, oftentimes we've looked at this story as an ethical story. It tells us about how to be good, the, the good Samaritan. And I think that's why this story is so popular among all people, even outside of, of Christian circles. People like a story about someone who's good and ethical. It's a good, feel-good story. And certainly there are elements of this story that are like that. But this story, the main point of it is not just that the Samaritan was good, but what the Samaritan demonstrated. See, this story is not primarily ethical, but ecclesial. Ecclesial is just this fancy word for church. This story demonstrates something about the church, about God's people. And so what was so provocative to this, this story for the original audience was not that the Samaritan could be good. It's like, okay, maybe he, there's a little bit of good in there that he could help this person out. But what was so awe-striking about this story is that the Samaritan is the one who rightly sees how God is at work. The Samaritan is the one who, who rightly sees and responds and is in part of God's family because the Samaritan recognized what it meant to be a neighbor. The, the, the rightness of this story that the Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite, not a Jew, but the Samaritan, could see God at work in the world and join in. See, when we talk about being the best neighbors, what, what are we talking about? It's kind of simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's kind of simple. Being the best neighbors is about learning to recognize where God is at work in the world and then joining in and participating. Being a neighbor is about learning to recognize where God is at work in the world and then joining in. So what? This is usually the time in the sermon where I try to say, okay, this is what this means for you. This is what this means for us. Here's what we're going to do about it. But as I said earlier, parables are not this copy and paste kind of thing. 
Parables are these invitations to wrestle and to enter into the story. And so if it's okay this morning, I I just want to share with you kind of how this story has been messing with me this week. How how I feel like God's spirit has been speaking to me in the midst of this this parable. You know, I I think the first thing that, that I thought of was that priest and the Levite. Because they were probably going somewhere really good. They probably had important meetings. Things that were going to do good for, for not just themselves, but for their community. But sometimes I can get so focused on, on doing good or even doing ministry that I miss the way that God is at work right in front of me. And so I pray that God would give me eyes to see. But then I've been thinking more this week about this story that that, that really demonstrates some elements of God's mercy and justice. And when I think about God's mercy and God's justice, I look around at my life and I I think, you know what? One of the things that we do in moments of of mercy and justice is is we respond we respond to some of the, the brokenness that we see, some of the need that we see around us. And I, I think I do a decent job at responding to that. You know, some things I, I'm a part of even here at churches is, is that we recognize that there are kids at, at Dillon Elementary that go home on the weekend and don't have enough to eat. And so we've responded by providing food bags every weekend. Our church has this benevolence fund. When, when there's a need that comes up, we're able to respond to that need and come alongside of these families. We just came through Christmas where we had community Christmas and Dylan Christmas and Angel Tree, this way of responding to this need that we've, we, we, we've recognized in our community. And that's great, and there's, there's a big place for that within the church. But the way that the Spirit has been messing me, with me this week is this question of what would it look like to not just be a part of God's mercy and justice in responding to needs. But to work in this restorative way that looks for God's activity beforehand in ways that can help alleviate some of this need. Like if we're looking at this Good Samaritan story for just a moment, I know it's probably confusing what I'm trying to say, so let me give some context. In this Good Samaritan story, the, the, the response is by this Samaritan to come alongside and to bandage and to care for this man who's been left. But I wonder what some restorative mercy and justice would look like in this story. Maybe it would look like advocating so that there's safer sidewalks or more streetlights or there's, there, there's more law enforcement so that there can be some protection on this, this way of blood. So that there's not a situation where a man is going down this road and is beat up and left for dead. I know it seems big and, and daunting, but, but maybe there's, maybe God is at work in some way where we can join in and there's not kids who are hungry on the weekend. There are not families that have need that we have to come alongside. I want to keep doing that. Hear me on that. But God's been speaking about, to me about how I just respond versus work to restore. The story is about being a neighbor, about, about being a people who learn to recognize God's activity in the world and then are able to participate and join in on it. Friends, that's, that's who I want to be. I love how the story ends. Jesus says, okay, so which one is the neighbor? And the lawyer has no choice. He's got to say, well, the one who showed mercy. 
And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and be a people who learn to recognize where I am at work in our world and choose to join in and participate in what I am doing, to respond and to restore. That's who I want to be. It was December 1st, 1955. Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat in the back of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. This was the third arrest of that that type in the last few months. And five days later, on, on that following Monday, December 5th, Local churches and the WAP gathered and they organized this peaceful protest as a way of saying, no more. We're done with these unjust laws of segregation. And as they gathered at Holt Street Baptist Church on that Monday, they asked a young Baptist pastor by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. to get up and share some words. This was the moment for Martin Luther King Jr. that really he became the face and leader of a civil rights movement. We just celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day this last Monday. And and, and these people engaged in this peaceful protest that lasted over a year until December 20th, 1956, when the federal Supreme Court ruled the segregation laws to be unconstitutional recognizing that that there are inalienable rights, that people are made in the image of God and they have worth and value and dignity. And when we can celebrate that, you know, there may not be someone in our recent history that was acutely able to recognize God's activity in the world and join in than Martin Luther King. But people were asking him about this moment. They were asking him about this this moment that became known as the Montgomery Bus Boycott. And in reflection on the event, he he said this, and this line has kind of just been been sticking with me and messing with me for for a while. He said this, What the church failed to accomplish on on Sunday, it accomplished on Monday. What the church failed to accomplish on Sunday, it accomplished on Monday. And here's what I think he meant by that. This time that we're together on Sunday, whether you're worshiping here or you're worshiping online, this is an important time for us. There's formation that happens as we gather and we worship and we learn. We are, in a lot of ways, a Sunday people. Our lives are in response to what happened on a Sunday 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday. But we're not just a Sunday people. We're also a Monday people. Because our Christian character, our Christian virtue is not most notably lived out in this space right here. But when we leave this place and on Monday and on the days to follow and we embody this Christ-like way of life in every space and every area of our lives, when we seek to see where God is at work and we choose to join in on God's good work of mercy and grace and truth and justice and redemption of all things, God has has created us and designed us to be a people who go and do likewise. And really, that's what this whole series has been about. This whole core series has been about recognizing where God is at work and choosing to join in, choosing to go and do likewise. 
But in order to do that, it takes a certain kind of posture. It, it takes this posture which is willing to kind of lean in and lean forward. See, I, I think too often we take this posture where we're, we're so focused on, on what's behind us. And, and hear me, we need to remember, we need to remember what God has done and what God has brought us through. But too often we are so focused on what's behind us, on what God did then and what God did this and in this church and in this way, in this movement. And we become so focused on what happened here that we miss what God is doing right in front of us. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 said, look, Behold, I am doing something new. Friends, we believe that God is doing something new in and among us. And that not only is God doing something new, but God is inviting us to lean forward and to participate in what God is doing. 